The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome again to Besides Still Waters. We're meditating on Hebrews chapter 10. And our focus is the first through the 18th verse. And I want to say to you that these are truths that are so large in their impact and scope that it begs description. It challenges our understanding of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to spend perhaps two, maybe three podcasts addressing some of the content of uh, these few verses. And uh, I would like to read them for you for obvious reasons. And it says, Lo, I come to do thy will. And this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes away the first that he may establish the second by which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering often the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down in perpetuity at the right hand of God, waiting from henceforth until his enemies be set for the stool of his feet. For, and this is key, for by one offering he has perfected in perpetuity the sanctified. One offering he has perfected. It's an accomplished fact. He has perfected in perpetuity the sanctified. We view ourselves as human beings indwelt by the Spirit of God. However, in this chapter, in these few verses, we are looking at the way God sees and perceives us, which is, we are perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, many use those terms loosely, but I want to delve in with a little more emphasis. Some teachers will say we have to view ourselves in Christ versus how we really are. But from God's perspective, from, from the vantage point of the divine, this is not so. From God's perspective, we meet the spiritual, moral, 
I'm going to say physical requirements for a holy God to not only find his pleasure in us, but to take that lower step and allow or command or pour into us his Holy Spirit. This is difficult to embrace mentally, first of all, because we see flaws within ourselves and that it is difficult, therefore, to apprehend the full scope of the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, it is a challenge <laughs> to embrace the truth of God's view of the Christian and the implications of this view with respect to the life that springs from our sanctified, Holy Spirit-filled position in Christ. Now, we are just at a 30,000-foot level. But I want to say to you, my dear fellow Christian, that the fact of the indwelling Spirit of God making us his living, breathing temple is a testament to the power, efficacy, and accomplishment of the offering of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood. We have been made and declared holy. And we are so holy that upon embracing the faith, the finished sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ, upon embracing the faith and the resurrection from the dead and all the truths associated with it, we have been completely washed of our sins, separated from our sins, as the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. And this is what we are told in the book of Psalms. And as such, God can legally deposit his spirit into our mortal bodies and choose to dwell in mortal bodies, which we experience through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not because I am anything other than a human vessel. But through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am made more than just an ordinary human being. Because the blood of Christ, in its shedding, has accomplished far more than we can ever imagine. He made the way possible for the Spirit of God to come down and live his life in us. Now, there are some moral implications from this great privilege. But for the time being, we'll keep this conversation at a very high level. God is at home in us. But God is holy. And in that holiness, 
and the full extent of that holiness. For him to live in a mortal body, that body has to be rendered holy. There must be no conflict for God to dwell in these mortal bodies. And in order to do that, the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, must be such that it accomplishes the washing, the cleansing, the sanctifying of these mortal bodies. Now we're going to come to some important implications as to indwelling sin in the body. We'll come to that. But for the time being, for him to indwell a mortal being, that being must be made clean. And the writer to the Hebrews said that part of the purpose of our Lord Jesus taking away the first covenant, which was predicated on bloodshedding of bulls and goats and so forth, so that he might establish a second, a new covenant that will be effected when he would offer himself on Calvary's cross and it would be ratified by the shedding of his blood. This is the very means by which you and I are made holy once for all. And that is what verse 10 is saying to us. By which will we have been, not wills be, but have been sanctified. Not having to put effort into it, but it is accomplished fact that we have been sanctified. We've been made holy. That said, I want to emphasize, it is not your doing or mine or failure to do or mine that tarnishes this fact. It cannot be altered. It is an accomplished fact. The value, the scope of it, has nothing to do with my perception of myself, for this is dependent on the view that God has about me as a Christian, a Christ one, one in whom the Spirit of the Lord Jesus lives. But he also lives to empower. So just think of this. In Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus calls us the light of the world. And in another gospel, it might have been John's gospel, he said, I, that is he, is the light of the world. Now, some may say, well, that seems confusing because is it us or is it him? And I want to say it is both. Because we can look at his life and conclude, yes, he is the light of the world. But when we think of ourselves, it is difficult to accept the fact that, <laughs> that you and I are the lights of this world. It's hard to accept this. But the Lord Jesus says, we are the light of the world. And his statement is true. Why? Because his shed blood has resulted, and I say resulted, in our complete and unequivocal cleansing from 
all sin before God, even before we have lived out our lives. And because from God's perspective, sin is no longer an issue, the spirit of life and light in the Lord Jesus can now come down to live in us. We are truly the light of the world. Now, I know that some are listening to this and are wrestling with the fact that I see in myself another law, as Paul wrote in chapter 7. And I'm going to give you a hint as to future podcasts, but much has to do with our willingness to relinquish being the driver of our lives. You and I must relinquish the self-will, self-driven dependence upon what I think I can do, for the life of the Christian is a life of yieldedness, a life of surrender. And surrender doesn't mean that I do something, I don't do something. Sometimes it has more to do with I will not interfere with the work of the Spirit of God using every circumstance, every situation, every person, every life event as a means of humbling me and causing me to relinquish control so that he can have his life lived out in me. Uh, one friend gave the analogy, not pertaining to this, but it's certainly applicable. We were talking about uh, learning to swim. And one of the, 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 the uh, confusing issues about buoyancy is if you are in deep waters and struggle, you're going to sink, you're going to drown. But if you yield to the law of buoyancy, and stop fighting, stop resisting, you find that the law of buoyancy takes over and you can't sink because it keeps you afloat. And the work of the Spirit is like that. It requires a relinquishing of our efforts and a full trusting that He will, in fact, live for us in us. In Hebrews 10, 15 through 18, we are told that the Holy Spirit also bears us witness of it. For after that was said, this is a covenant which I will establish towards them after those days, saith the Lord. Giving my laws into their hearts, I will write them also in their understanding. And here it is, and their sins and their lawlessnesses, says the Lord, I will never remember anymore. And the writer goes on to say, where there is remission of these, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. Now, this is important because there are Christians that said, well, I can be lost. And they struggle with, I can be saved, I can be lost, and so forth and so on. And there are others that will say, well, I'm saved forever, but they live carelessly. Now, remember, we are looking at this from the divine standpoint. Christ no longer has to offer himself as a sin offering. Why? Because he has put away, he has removed from the sinner who have trusted in him every record of 
They're crimes against God. The record has been expunged. He, she has been acquitted. But ask yourself, where is the Spirit of God giving witness? Because that's, that's what, this is the Spirit of God that is writing. The Spirit also bears us witness. The Spirit is witnessing. So where is the Spirit of God witnessing? He's giving a witness in the pages of Holy Writ, right in the Bible itself. The pages of Scripture are giving witness to the testimony of the Spirit of God as to what the work of Christ has accomplished. Why? He is its author. He is testifying in the Holy Scriptures that the work of our Lord Jesus Christ was so thorough that the infinite Holy God himself no longer requires a sacrifice and bloodshedding to remit sins. Why? Because the blood of Christ has thoroughly washed the criminal sinner's record completely. It has been expunged. There's no longer an evidence of it. Now, that may not be the personal experience of the Christian. Because our task is to grow continually in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this. We must purpose to keep growing in his grace. Keep learning to yield, learning to surrender a little more each day. And allowing, like the law of buoyancy, allowing the Spirit of God to empower us to live a life of yieldedness. We are progressively becoming sanctified in this life, while from the divine perspective, we have been already sanctified in our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are progressing towards an already accomplished fact from God's perspective. The second reason why the scriptures are of paramount importance is this. They are the very source material of the promises of God. They are the repository of the unchanging assurances that God makes to the believer. These are the statements, the guarantees, for example, that Peter writes in his second letter, quote, great and precious promises through which we have become partakers of the divine nature. How else can a human being fellowship with God except through the working and empowering of the Spirit of God? God's word is invaluable as it penetrates our thoughts and becomes the very stuff that the Spirit of God uses to transform our lives. What Peter is saying is when a believer embraces a, a promise of God, the Spirit of God can then be, if you will, uh, allowed 
to do his work. Because the believer is looking to God in simple faith that he, that is God, will bring to pass the value, the depth, the reality of that promise into the life. And the Spirit can now use every circumstance, every person, everything, every illness, every everything to bring that believer into a deeper walk with God. But it necessitates, it demands a, a if you will, a purposefulness of heart to not get in the way. And so verse 17 says, Their sins and their lawlessnesses I will never remember anymore. That, my friends, is a divine declaration of the Godhead concerning his view of me as a repentant sinner. And I want to in, in, insert a caution right at this point, because this is critical. It is important that we not embrace sinful, rebellious conduct in a presumptuous fashion. We cannot reason in our hearts. It is dangerous to reason in our hearts that because I have been washed of all my crimes against God, I can therefore go and live again in the very crimes that the blood of Jesus has washed us from. And that sort of thinking is catastrophic to the progress and growth and, and uh, development of the Christian. The thought, the conviction, the intention of the Christian is to no longer live in the conduct, the behavior, the sins of the past and the sins of the world because we died to them. Galatians 2.20 and also the first 12 verses of Romans 6. We died to them in our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. My friends, you and I died to our histories, and therefore it behooves us to seek the continual filling of the Spirit of God to the extent that I learn, and this is the operative word, I learn to walk with, walk in him. I learn to depend on his grace. I learn to yield that his power might be operative in me and enable me, a sinner saved by grace, to live in a way that brings glory to God, to not willingly embrace the very sins, the very crimes that have resulted in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the witness of the Spirit says, God says he will never remember my crimes against him anymore. He will not call them to mind. They have been expunged. They have been washed away. And this is evidencing the thoroughness of the work of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. My friends, we insult a righteous, holy, truthful God 
by recollecting. Now, I want to say this because we all, in some way, shape, or form, have been guilty of this. We recollect, bring to mind, regurgitate our past sins, our past crimes, whatever they were. I don't care what they were. But when we bring these past crimes up and we flagellate ourselves and demean ourselves and say, oh, what a worthless person I am. When the blood of Christ and the witness of the Spirit says, I've washed you from them. Why are you resurrecting what has been expunged? It is finished. It is past. It is over. And to resurrect these past sins, to resurrect these past failures, and therefore, if you will, cast our souls down as worthless, when the blood of Jesus Christ has so washed us that the third person of the Trinity can live in me, I am insulting the gracious, holy, perfect work of our Lord Jesus Christ to sanctify me. We insult the work of our Lord Jesus. Now, you and I might conclude, well, I'm just being humble. No, that is sheer rank unbelief. Why? Because the Spirit says you've been washed. And you and I resurrect those past sins and say, well, what about this? I feel so bad. How could I be? I'm such a wretch. Oh, if people only knew... But from God's perspective, he doesn't know anymore because he promised you'll never remember anymore. So therefore, it's not a mark of humility. It's a mark of unbelief. Sheer unbelief. I'm not humble because I remember my sins. But I insult a holy God because he doesn't remember them anymore. So why am I bringing them to, to, to my recollection? It's an insult to God that I would take the position that he doesn't take and view myself in a way that he doesn't view me. But he views me by virtue of the shed blood as a, uh, a human being who has been made righteous, who has morally met God's requirement. Let me give you a, a, just a practical illustration. Let's say you have a difference of opinion with a friend. And they concluded that they were in the wrong. And as you talked about it, they took ownership of it and apologized and you forgave them and resumed your fellowship, your friendship. Two weeks later, they raise the matter again and want to apologize all over again, which prompts you to say, listen, it's okay. It's no longer an issue between us. And then another two or three weeks later, they raise the matter again, wanting to apologize once more for an event that happened in the past. And they are letting you know again how sorry they are. But by this point, their constant resurrection of a past uh, 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 insult or, 
or difference of opinion or whatever it is, is becoming unsettling because what they're doing is they're not accepting the forgiveness that you have granted them. And what became initially a point of resolution between you and your friend now becomes an insult because they will not accept that they have once and for all been forgiven. Well, my friends, we do the same with God when we continually resurrect our past, our botched lives. We refuse to accept that we have been sanctified, that God, through our Lord Jesus, has washed us from our past crimes, and that our history, our history, I say our history, before we have even lived it out, ended at Calvary. And when you and I resurrect the past, which God says he doesn't recollect, and we flagellate ourselves about things that we've done in the past, only to result in our being remorseful, we have insulted the living God because he declares that he doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. And what we ought to do is agree with God. Now he rejoices in us. And we know this because he indwells us by his spirit right now. And add to this, Christ is risen and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And all these are the results of the wonderful spiritual realities that have become ours through the offering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to stop resurrecting our old past life, refusing, I say refusing to believe that God, who is righteous and holy, speaks truthfully in his word that he has not only forgiven us, that is, removing those crimes and expunging the record, but he has sanctified us. He's made us holy, set us apart for himself, and how do I know this is true? Because having trusted in Christ, we are sealed, indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. But it necessitates a yielding, a surrendering, a not getting in the way, a giving over ourselves to the law of buoyancy in the spiritual life and allowing the Spirit of God to do his work in our lives. We are not humble when we resurrect our past. But in truth, and in fact, we demonstrate that we are unbelieving because we refuse to accept what he declares about us, that this declaration concerning our sanctification is true. We have been sanctified by the offering of the body of the Lord Jesus once and for all. It is that fact, that event in history that accomplishes all this. If Christ has not died, then we are still in our sins. But Christ has died. Yes, Christ is risen. And this is God's testimony, his evidence that what he says is in fact truth. Verse 14 says, this is, this is what I love. For by one offering... 
He has perfected, not sanctified only, but perfected in perpetuity the sanctified. This is a sealed matter with God. And yes, it is the epitome of the work of the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus and the shedding of his blood, coupled with the greatest event on earth, which is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead, the net effect is that for all eternity, while I am still yet on the earth, while I am still living out the years that I have left to me before the Lord Jesus returns or before I go to the grave, Christ's sacrifice has perfected me in the eyes of a holy God. And this perfecting work is from the moment I embrace the truth that Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for me. The truth of the gospel, it never ends. But the effect of it, if you will, continues into eternity, into everlasting life forever and ever. Amen. He has done this. Not he will do this. He has done this. He has perfected in perpetuity the very sinner who has trusted in him, who has been sanctified by his uh, shed blood. He's perfected them in perpetuity. He has done this. It is an accomplished fact. In the eyes of God. <laughs> what is my task while on earth? What is my task? Well, I think my task, your task, is twofold. The Christian has to learn to live in dependence upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me translate that because sometimes we use biblical terms, and, well, it could get a little confusing. So let me make it really simple. My moral duty is to live every day, yes, even every moment, trusting the Lord Jesus to be the enabling power in my life to, to uh, live a life of surrender. I am dependent upon his grace, his willingness to empower me to stay out of the way. <laughs> stay out of the way. And allow the Spirit of God to use the life circumstances that I experience, whether illness, hardship, difficulty, trial, whatever it is, use everything. Cause it to work together for good, my good. But I am looking to the Lord Jesus to not only live in me, but to live for me in every circumstance because he lives in me. That's what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live. Well, that's a mystery. I'm crucified, but I live. But is it me? No, it is my spirit that is joined to the spirit of God that infuses me with the grace of God to live the life that brings glory to God. So my first duty is to live in dependence upon the grace of our Lord Jesus, that he might manifest his resurrection life in my body. Paul alluded to this in Galatians 2.20. I've quoted it several times. Christ lives in me. But this is what he says. But in that I now live in the flesh, how do I live? By faith. 
I am trusting that if Christ lives in me, he must be my life in every circumstance. At work, at leisure, at meals, while working, while laboring, while cleaning the house, while taking care of the children, while being with my family, whatever it is. <laughs> he must be my life. I must be looking to him to use the life circumstances that I encounter to manifest himself. Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Secondly, find this in Philippians 3.10. And I'm going to stop here. My objective, your objective, is to know him. Philippians 3.10, to know him in two distinct ways. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There are two things I will experience as I live godly in Christ Jesus. I'm going to take a little bit of heat for it. But conversely, I must depend upon the very power that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, trusting that God through his Spirit will accomplish in me, in my mortal body, what I cannot. It necessitates a coming to God and simply saying, Lord, give me the grace to not get in the way. Live for me. Live in me. Put your words in my mouth. Put your words, your thoughts in my thoughts. Use my hands. Use my feet for the glory of God. And Paul could write that the objective of his life was to live his life by faith in the indwelling Christ and to allow the grace of our Lord Jesus to transform him through his sufferings Use the things that I suffer, O oh my God and Father, to bring glory to you and for, to cause others to see the life and love and light of our Lord Jesus Christ. O oh, our Father in heaven, we pray for every blood-transformed believer that you will manifest your grace and your power in such a way that it would be our delight to surrender to you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining Besides Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Besides Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.